0: Uh, My name is Benedict Delitz. I'm the head of the new RSA Future Work Centre and I'm delighted to welcome you all here today for the RSA Thursday lunchtime event. Uh, Before we begin, could I ask you to turn your mobiles to silent? We're filming and live streaming today as always, so a very big welcome to all of you who are joining us on Twitter. The hashtag for the event is RSA Work. Um, Please do join the discussion, even if you're in the room. Um, And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome today's speaker, David Graeber. David needs very little introduction, so I'll keep this brief. David is a professor of anthropology at the LSE. His many books include The Utopia of Rules, The Democracy Project, and The Best-Selling Debt, The First 5,000 Years. A frequent guest on the BBC, um, he writes for, among others, The Guardian, Strike, The Baffler, and New Left Review. His strike essay on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs which was published in 2013. touched Such a nerve that was read over a million times and translated into 17 different languages. Um, His new book, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory, uh, expands on this concept and it outlines how, rather ironically, meaningless work has become more associated with latter-day capitalism, profit-making capitalism, than it has with failed communist states. Um, David's argument is that not only are these jobs... Uh, absurd, they are also incredibly miserable for those who have them, and we'll be looking closely at David's theory as part of our new Future Work Centre. So without further ado, please give a very warm welcome to David.
1: All right, well... Thanks so much uh, for that introduction. Um, I guess I've already talked a little bit about this very subject here before, but we really can't talk about it enough because it's, it's, it's a strange thing that this is not considered a social problem. And I've, I've spent some years, one reason I wrote this book is because it's, there seems to be this peculiar way in which if you mention this to people, you know, almost no one will deny it, but at the same time, it is, no one quite knows what to do with it. It's like this gigantic embarrassment in our society. I thought I would, I would start by talking a little bit about how I kind of got onto this topic to begin with. Um, some years ago, back in 2000, uh, 2011, 2010, uh, I wrote a book on debt, and that book did fairly well. It wasn't actually a bestseller, uh, but um, (laughs) I guess internationally, it did pretty well. Um, As as they said, it's an international bestseller, which means I think it was like, it was number two on German Amazon for about three hours, (laughs) 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 so it counts. Uh, But you know, the book did fairly well. and. there's a funny thing where if you say something that a number of people consider interesting new sort of unusual uh, and you show you have a capacity to do that it's almost as if the world will conspire to make sure you never do that again uh, they will try to make you give the same talk write the same book do essays based on you know, for the rest of your life in fact that's what you really get paid for not the original book but going out and lecturing about it and, um, One reason I'm often um, not particularly rich is because I decided I wasn't going to do that. I thought, what if I do the opposite? What if I use this as an opportunity to say things I would never normally get to say? I thought of all those ideas I had for articles that were always rejected or, or I didn't even think to send to people because I knew they would be. I thought, maybe I can cash in. You know, um, so anytime somebody said, "Oh, we really want you to write something for our new periodical, and I would say, "What about?" and they'd say anything, I would say, "Really, anything <laughs> okay, uh, so I'd get out you know some piece that was a drunken party rant I'd been going on about for ten years, and no one would conceivably publish and and I and would put that there, and some of them you know pfft, well, did what you kind of think they would do, but some of them kind of took off and and, and This one was just not like anything I'd ever seen. It was—I say how I got onto it. I consider myself something of an anthropologist, even in the world of anthropologists, because I I don't really come from that kind of background. That is to say, the academic milieu. I I was brought up in a working-class family and among people who actually did stuff, and um, you know, up. Task orientation was a big thing um, and my father was a uh, work in printing it was a offset photolithography, and my mother worked in garment factories for a lot of her life so so i 'm kind of a stranger in the world uh, the worlds which I traverse, and as a result, I mean the whole idea of anthropology is that strangers have a certain insight that natives don 't uh, so one thing I kept noticing was this strange phenomena of people who are apologetic of what they do for a living, not just because they thought it was evil. Some of them do, uh, but but just because they don't actually do anything. You, know, uh, you, you you run into people at parties and you say, well, you know, I'm an anthropologist, and they think that's interesting. And say, well, what do you do? And they say, oh, nothing really. Uh, <laughs> and you think they're just being modest, right? But but <laughs> if you interrogate them, you discover no, they're Literally doing nothing uh, a lot of these guys. They work for two hours a week And, and it's like don't tell my boss, but you can do the whole thing and it would be two hours and you know, otherwise I, I basically update my Facebook profile and you know, I make cat memes um, <laughs> Play Minesweeper a lot um, so Actually um, one of the conclusions of my book this will be skipping ahead, but I uh, is that a lot of the the sort of forms of popular culture that have emerged in the last 20 years you know, back in the 60s, we had a lot of forms of popular culture that took a lot of time, you know, like the half-hour drum solo or um, <laughs> beat poetry that goes on forever. And, and and now, you know, it's all this stuff that, like, cat memes or YouTube rants, or, uh, they're all things that you can do while you're pretending to do something else. <laughs> so basically, like, all these people are, are not really working at their jobs. So, so this stuff that's circulating is all things that... that they're doing when people think they're working, uh, or at least they have to be decent enough to make some kind of pretense that they're doing something. Anyway, so, so you meet these people, and, and you know, I thought, well, how, how common is this? I seem to run into them a lot. So, you know, these people said a Strike magazine. It was this new magazine. They had, it was their third issue, I think. And they said, "Oh, come, just write something interesting, something you know we wouldn't normally get. Just whatever you like." So I said, "Okay, I'm going I'm, I'm to try it out." Um, so I wrote this piece called "On the Phenomena of Bullshit Jobs," and I suggested that this is the reason why we don't have a 15-hour work week. And Keynes famously predicted in the 30s that we were almost up on the time that we should be working. Certainly half what we're doing now, probably considerably less. And if you look at the kind of jobs that existed in Keynes' time, well, we have eliminated a lot of them. He talked about technological unemployment in the 1930s, and a lot of people thought, well, you know, it wasn't really true. And you know, everybody's been saying the robots are going to take our jobs, you know, for the last 100 years or so. Unemployment stays about the same in the long run. Well, you know, maybe it's not such a threat. But I, I would make the opposite argument. I would say, you know, the robots have been taking our jobs for the last hundred years or so. But instead of replacing the, you know, instead of redistributing the labor in a reasonable fashion, we've simply made up completely meaningless, pointless jobs. Either industries that just have no purpose to exist, um, other than their own existence. You know. Um, it's actually one of the categories of bullshit jobs I ended up making up because a lot of people sent in descriptions of things like corporate law or um, telemarketing. You don't need a telemarketer unless your, your, your competitor has one, right? You don't need a corporate lawyer unless you, somebody else has one. It's a little like feudal lords, you know, you need feudal lords to protect you from other feudal lords. Um, but so there are these industries that sort of feed off themselves. But everybody in it secretly thinks they don't need to exist. I mean, I've never met a corporate lawyer who really felt that, that it's a good thing that there are corporate lawyers in the world, which is interesting. I mean, obviously, has something to do with the kind I would need, right? But nonetheless, I mean, there's a considerable number of them that, that feel this way. Uh, all right, so, so, so I wrote this up. I said, well, maybe that's it. Uh, maybe it's political. Maybe, you know, the reason nobody does anything about this is because it's actually pretty convenient to a system of finance-based capital where you're not even concentrating on making stuff and and selling stuff as much as extracting rents or create artificially creating debt. You know, this is all, the sort of perfect division of labor for that. You have a certain amount of unemployed who you make fun of and then you have the structurally unemployed who you give these these meaningless jobs where you're basically buying their loyalty you know, um, you put them in these mock, uh, managerial positions. The interesting thing, and this is actually part of the argument that I should underline, we have a false narrative about what happened, which makes it possible for people not to, not to perceive what's, going on. The narrative is the reason we aren't working a 20 or 15 hour week is because we fell in for consumerism. You know, we had a choice between more leisure time and more stuff. So, you know, everybody wanted iPhones and designer sushi and, you know, we chose that over over more time to hang out with our friends. Uh, The problem is it doesn't really work. First of all, you know there's not that many people involved in, in sushi and iPhones and so forth and most of the new jobs that have been created aren't really related to that in fact if you look at actual service the, the rise of the service economy rhetoric comes with this if You look at actual service and I found some people who should break down real service as in you know giving people haircuts serving people coffee um, laundry you know things like that if you look at actual service the numbers have been pretty much the same for the last hundred years. Uh, it's been about 20 percent. About 20 percent of the workforce does service, and it used to be they were more likely to do it for a private household. But other than that, you know, the, the sheer numbers are about the same. What's gone up, and just astronomically, is the number of clerical, administrative, and supervisory workers, managers. Um, there's, what I call managerial sub-infudation or managerial feudalism. We have rank on rank of these new intermediary roles that never used to exist. Um, those are the guys that that seem to complain the most about not doing anything. Anyway, so I wrote this, and it was all intuitive. I didn't really know how many of these people there were. I seemed to meet them a lot. Uh, so I said, almost as a joke, well, maybe that's the reason we don't have a 15-hour week. Maybe we're just making up these bullshit jobs, or so it's as if, I mean, nobody planned it quite. But you know, it seems to suit the. Purposes of those in power, uh, or will actually was the first person to argue that he said that they're just making up jobs to keep people off the street. Uh, but so I, I suggested maybe he's right, and I've never seen a reaction like this. This was a very obscure periodical; um, I'd never heard of it even before I published in it. And and um, you know, within a matter of weeks, it had been translated, I think now it's up to 21 languages, I think the first couple of weeks we got 12, it just came out in Persian, actually, um, I saw, apparently they have a problem with bullshit jobs in Iran now, um, but, um, you know, it's all over the world, there's Korea, Estonia, you know, uh, in Brazil, there was a huge, Egypt, anyway, um, so there's a huge hull of blue, and, and and the site kept crashing, uh, then, then newspapers started running it as a column and picking it up, and I looked at the comment sections, and the comment sections were just amazing. I mean, there were all these people, like, writing these confessionals, you know. Oh, my God, it's true. I'm, I'm a corporate lawyer. I, I contribute nothing to society. I, I suffer. I, you know, <laughs> nobody knows my misery. Um, this kind of thing. And I realized that there's a social problem that just nobody's paying attention to. I got people writing to me, too, saying yeah, I've been re- I work in the financial services industry and, you know, I've been passing it around. This thing has come across my desk at least 20 times today. And I was like, God, you guys really aren't doing much, are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so with that um, came the realization that the problem was worse than I thought. But I was still thinking, okay, 15%, maybe maximum 20% of all jobs would be like this. Uh, eventually someone did a survey at YouGov, and they took stuff actually out of uh, words that I'd used in the piece, does your job make a meaningful contribution to society? Uh, I discovered 37% of people in this country believe that it does not, or certain that it does not. 13% percent were unsure. Only 50% were quite sure their job does do something, which actually is pretty amazing if you think about it, is, <coughs> you know, think about all the jobs that no one would possibly say that. Uh, you know, if you're a bus driver, uh, you know, you're know, you doing something, you might hate your job, but, but you're not gonna say it's useless and pointless and why am I doing this? People need to move around. Um, if you're a nurse, if you're a, you know, think of all the jobs that, that obviously need to be done. So the conclusion you know, would have to be that anybody who you see sitting there in an office and you're wondering, is this person secretly thinking his job doesn't need to exist? The answer is yes, he's almost certainly thinking that. <laughs> Um, it 's really high, and then when you think about all right, these are the people who know it, right, and just let 's forget about that thirteen percent who aren 't sure let 's just drop them and just look at the thirty percent who are definitely sure their their job doesn 't contribute anything all right um, those are the ones who are aware of it it 's easy to see how you could not be aware that your job is pointless but it's much harder to see how you could think your job is pointless and be wrong you now it's possible that you're fulfilling some function that your boss understands that you don't and people keep saying that's possible to me but I keep asking what would be an example of that Do you know someone in that situation and no one can really come up with one I mean I, so it's possible but there really aren't very many on the other hand it's really easy to see how you could think you're doing something and, you, and, and you're not, um, and there are people. Some of the people wrote to me, and I got amazing stories. Like there's one person who worked for a travel magazine, um, and she'd worked for there for about six months until she realized a travel magazine doesn't really exist. The whole thing was some sort of tax scam, <laughs> and, you know, they're all there writing copy and putting photographs and laying things out, but the thing was never produced, you know. She said, you know, I fly a lot, and I've never seen this magazine. <laughs> I only like, looked into it and realized that, you know, it, it's not real. So, you know, that's an extreme example, but the, the equivalent can happen and probably does happen quite a bit. And then you have to think about all the people who actually do real work in support of that kind of pointless, meaningless employment, you know, here's somebody with a law firm that's doing some sort of fraudulent tax scam or something like that. Well, they got an office. Somebody's got to water the plants, right? That's a real job. Somebody's got to clean the place. Somebody's got to do security and community reception. So they're doing real work, but they're doing real work in support of bullshit. So, you know, I've started thinking, my God, like, you know, for all I know, half the work being done in our society is completely unnecessary. If they got rid of it, it would make no difference whatsoever. Um, so I ended up saying, all right, this obviously deserves to be picked up on a, need to do some research and see what kind of jobs these are and and who these people are, what they're really doing. So I ended up... Um, I have a lot of followers on Twitter, so I figured, all right, it's a biased sample, but you know, it'll give me some good stories. So I said, all right, have you ever had a really pointless job, a job that, you know, if it were to vanish, either it would make no difference or the world would be a slightly better place? All right, um, so tell me all about it. You know, I, I set up a Gmail account. Do I have a BS job or what? Uh, Gmail doesn't allow you to use bullshit in the title, right? And um, I set that up, and sure enough, I got hundreds and hundreds of, of replies. Um, some of which were pointless, um, and and kind of missed the point a little bit, and um, and some of them were short and. You know, some of them were just a sentence or two. Some of them were 13 pages long, and people write these long work histories of detailed psychological and sociological analysis. Yeah, you know, they had a lot of time on their hands. Or how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really useful. The book kind of wrote itself in that way. So I ended up, um, you know, I, I, I put them all in a gigantic word file, and then I color coded them for content, which was really fun. Um, you know, I. I Green was for like what I do when people think I'm working and Orange was for does my boss know and what is my supervisor? Yeah, so so I'd code it that way and um, I used that as my database and I ended up writing this book But i um, I think we're gonna do a dialogue format. Maybe I've been talking too long already or, um Okay, I'll just I'll just uh, I mean there's a lot of things I could say um, I could go through the typology but um, I think the political implications of all this are something that I, I would like to emphasize. Um, one reason that I wrote this book, you know, I'm, I'm an anti-capitalist anarchist, personally. I've been involved in direct action movements for a long time. And, um, and it always seems to me that capitalism is being held together more by moral arguments than anything else at this point, because most of the old practical arguments don't really apply. You know, for the last 50 years, you just said, well, you know, capitalism creates great inequality, but at least, you know, it lifts all boats, and uh, even poor people know their children will be doing better off in the next generation. And, Nobody believes that anymore, that's obviously not true. Um, The other argument was it creates a big, strong middle class and that leads to political stability, and that's clearly not the case. Um, The other one was technological, you know, well, we're all gonna be on Jupiter in a few years, Uh, there's gonna be endless inventions, capitalism is a huge engine for creativity, and you know, instead we just get like iPhone 7, iPhone 8. Uh, But um, all the sci-fi stuff just, It used to happen, but capitalism seemed to stop producing that stuff all of a sudden. Um, So none of those things are true. So in a large way, I think the only two arguments left are, well, anything else would be worse. You know, it's us or North Korea, basically. Uh, And the other argument is, well, it's basically moral. It's just like people really do believe that if, you don't pay your debts, you're a bad person. I mean, unless you're rich, in which case it doesn't matter somehow. Uh, but <laughs> you know, if you're Donald Trump and you go bankrupt, they elect you president. But um, you know, if you're an ordinary person, you're a deadbeat and a bad person. Um, and so, so that one really works. People feel that you, know, you really have to pay your debts. It doesn't matter if you've been maneuvered into it, which is a really, really convenient thing for the guys who are running a financialized system, right? Um, Michael Hudson actually made the argument that you know, 30 years ago, rich people discovered that poor people actually feel they should pay their debts, um, which had never occurred to them because they don't, right? Um, it's true. I mean, I, I, people ask me why I'm a professor. You know, they say, why don't you become a writer? You, you know, it would be more fun. You'd set your own hours. You wouldn't have to do all this admin work. And I always say, well, you know, there's, there's one thing about academia which isn't true of, being a musician, being an artist, being a writer—any of those things—which is, they never ever pretend they just forgot to pay you <laughs> every month. There it is, like clockwork. You know, and anything like you know, where they have any excuse not to pay their debt to you, they won't do it. Um, I mean, it's just amazing. That's why we have agents. You know, so I could tell you stories. Uh, but all right, so so debt is one thing, and um, the other one is. Is, is work. Oh, they really seem to have convinced people that if you aren't working harder than you wanna be working at something you don't particularly enjoy, uh, preferably under the orders of somebody you don't like, um, then you're just a bad person. You, know? you don't deserve help. You don't deserve relief. There, no one should love you. you know? um, and, and how that happened is one of the things I've tried to investigate over the course of the book. Um, you know how it is that we see work as this kind of a act of self-abnegation. It's a secular hair shirt. It's supposed to be suffering. To the point where, you know, if you get anything out of work, it lowers the value rather than it making it better. Um, to the, Even the knowledge that you are helping other people. So there's this perverse idea that not only is it generally true, and, exceptions to every rule, but it is generally true that the more your work benefits others, the less you're likely to get paid for it. But people think that's okay. You no know, in fact, a lot of people think that's right. well, we shouldn't pay teachers too much. Uh, you don't want people who are greedy teaching our children, you know that sort of thing um and you know that comes out of this idea that work should be suffering itself, anything you get out of it mitigates it's its it's itself sacrifice value and that is the flip side of a serious system of consumerism so you know we deserve our, our furtive consumer pleasures because we spend most of the day suffering uh, and and therefore the uselessness of work actually adds to its value in some in, in some perverse way unconscious way rather rather than enhancing it um, something like that must be going on you know why is it that it's considered acceptable that You know, nurses and, you know, the guy who gives you trade information, or people actually help you in some way, should pay the cost of austerity and bankers shouldn't, you know. How does that make any kind of moral sense to anyone? Um, It's, it's, can only be through some sort of logic. Well, you guys are self-sacrificing, go self-sacrifice, you know. (laughs) And so what I was trying to do is to take aim at that kind of moral argument. I wrote one book about that, you know. Um, That seemed to work fairly well. So this is my contribution to the debate about work. (laughs)
0: <laughs> take a seat? Thank you. Right Thanks very much, David. Um, I thought we might begin by maybe teasing out this distinction between jobs that are bullshit and jobs that are just highly specialized. Because I think when you, when you first published your 2013 essay, you had mm-hmm. a, uh, a reply from The Economist magazine. Oh, yeah. which, which pointed out that, okay, our economy is becoming more complex with a more complex economy, you have specialized jobs and in those specialized jobs It's harder to see where you fit as a small cog in a big machine, leaving people to think that their job maybe isn't that worthwhile Do you have any thoughts on On, on that notion of right. complexity.
1: Yeah, um, I, I could <clears throat> contextualize this the piece came out, and I think two days later, maybe it was three, The Economist already had a reply out, which is pretty amazing, considering you know I don't think The Economist normally reads Strike Magazine, uh, let alone feels obliged to like, write instant replies to their arguments. Uh, but you know they, they sensed something was a threat. Uh, but what they made the argument, the argument they made was that this is the digital equivalent of assembly line labor. You know, our wealth in the period of industrialization was based on these assembly line jobs where people were just, you know, doing one thing all day long. And it was horrible and alienating, but, you know, that it, it made, meant we had cars and, and planes and things. And, and nowadays, they said, this is the same thing. You know, they've robotized a lot of the production, but you have these complex supply chains and just-in-time production and... and, and containerized shipping, all, you know, all this globalized stuff. It's really hard to coordinate. Um, so even though the actual production has been increasingly digitized, you need these people sort of toiling in the communicative mills. Uh, so these are, and, and their jobs are all chopped up into tiny pieces like the assembly line was. So they might think, oh, I'm not doing anything. But, you know, in the big picture, this is the basis of our, our, our wealth and prosperity. Um, I think the best counter argument to that um, is my own experience in universities, uh, where I think the, I don't have the figures for the UK, but I know in the US, number of professors, general lecturers and teaching staff has gone up by 50%. Students have gone up about the same, slightly more. Administrators, in terms of big-shot administrators, 85%. Administrative staff have gone up by 240%. This has exploded. It's actually much more in private universities, too, than in public ones. Um, so, all right, to take the economist's argument, this, has teaching become twice or three times as complicated as it was 30 years ago? I mean, what is the academic equivalent of supply, global supply chains? I mean, we're just basically doing the same thing. We're just sitting there, I mean, we have PowerPoint instead of a Blackboard. I don't know. I'm, I'm a Luddite, but everyone else does. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, we get a Moodle page, Yeah, but basically it's the same thing. We go to seminars, we teach, we lecture, we we talk to people, um, we we grade papers. Um, so. It's clearly something else is going on, you know. And in fact, what you see in academia is is the opposite. Rather than having this huge apparatus of people so as to make us super efficient and and in our teaching, actually, you know, these guys are supposed to be saving us labor because they're doing our administrative work so we don't have to. So in theory, we can go off and think great thoughts, are doing exactly the opposite. They're making up administrative stuff for us to do, so we have more of admin too. so my my interpretation is exactly the opposite, that, you know, essentially you have a corporatized model. You know, managerialism means that it's no longer the guild model, which universities used to be one of the few remaining examples of the old medieval system, where people self-organize it in a very hierarchical fashion. Um, so it's no longer the idea of people producing something, in this case knowledge, uh, who are training new, new scholars. You have managers running it, but managers feel they're like they deserve to be something like what they would get, get something like what they would get in the corporate world. In the corporate world, it's just assumed that, you know, you need to have five or six flunkies or you're not a really important person. Uh, So, so, you know, they hire these guys as like deanlets or vice provosts or whatever, and, and they, they immediately assign them three or four minions, and, and they figure out what those minions are going to do. Uh, So what do they do? They end up making up work for us to do. So suddenly I have to do time allocation studies all the time about what I'm doing of my time rather than spending my time actually teaching or, or, or learning anything
0: just turning mm-hmm. the attention to solutions so in the, in the last chapter of the book you actually land on ubi yeah. as a potential solution to rid us of bullshit jobs and that's actually something the rsa is an advocate of but for oh, slightly well, different reasons good you. i would say yes, um, idea,
1: yeah.
0: but mm-hmm. if, if you had a second intervention mm-hmm. if you had a second way of addressing bullshit jobs what would it be and the reason why i asked that is because mm-hmm. UBI, for all of its merits, is something which it will take time for it to become politically palatable. It will take time for it to be implemented. So what can we do in the here and now?
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of bullshit jobs really has to do with supply-side economics. Um, I had a sort of one of those moments of exceptional clarity where somebody says something so simple and obvious that you're like, oh, right, you know, uh, I can just flip that on his head. And um, Someone pointed out that you know, there are all these tax cuts in America, uh, they always ask, you know, they've redefined rich people as job creators. And when people ask why are there so many bullshit jobs, one thing I always point out is the only thing that left and right seem to agree on is that more jobs is always good, right? Um, they disagree on how you create them, but they never say more jobs that actually do something, right? They, they assume that jobs will necessarily be good or else they wouldn't exist, which is obviously untrue. Um, but it's particularly true in the case of, of just handing money to rich people because you think they're job creators. Someone pointed out, and this was, is this was my sort of eureka moment, uh, they were saying, well, you know, they asked a bunch of manufacturers and other, other em- employers you know if you get this tax cut you're about to be handed are you going to hire more workers and very few of them put up their hands um, and, and one reason for that is they ask manufacturers because if you hand money to poor people you know they will buy food and other necessities um, maybe they'll buy shoes if you, ha- if you give money to middle class people they might put in a swimming pool, but you're still employing people to put in swimming pools But you know y- y- it will create jobs It'll create demand for actual stuff or services that a lot of people want if you just give money to rich people and say Okay, you're a job creators. So here's a lot of money go off and create some jobs Well, they're unlikely to create shoes uh, and swimming pools that they can't sell to anybody so, uh, But if they feel pressure to hire somebody, what are they going to do? They're going to hire a bunch of flunkies to make them feel good about themselves. I mean, it's the obvious thing to do. And, and I, I realized that, that's another little formula I put together, that about half of the people who work as civil servants now are basically in... You know, bureaucrats are basically there to make poor people feel bad about themselves. In, in the same way, about half the bureaucrats in private companies are there to make rich people feel good about themselves, uh, feel important, you know, have their own little, little empires. And, you know, the, the importance of an executive is often measured by how many people they have working under them. Often their pay is directly related to that. But well, do what do you expect any, they're going
0: to do? Do you have any thoughts on the growing growing demands for a four-day working week. Is that a way of solving this? Or is yeah. this just saying, it well, let's help. have four days of a bullshit job, <laughs> and then three days escaping that?
1: Yeah, well, that is the problem. I mean, the, I, I used to embrace cutting down the working week as mm. the primary way of addressing these kind of problems, or just as a good thing in general. You know, it's, It shows something about the cult of work that you have to embrace cutting down work time Not because it would be nice not to work so much, but for some other reason. You can't just say, everybody's working too hard, let's take a day off. No, that's just taboo. So you have to say, oh, it'll reduce unemployment. Or, you know, it'll have some other beneficial effect. But it can't be good in itself. Um, But, yeah, I used to embrace cutting down the working week, and I do think that would be a good thing. Uh, The problem to me is how to... It's not so much that people do bullshit jobs but do them less. It's that you'll need to create a whole bureaucracy to enforce it. Mm. And a lot of my anarchist friends who I talk about this with are themselves in casualized or contract work. And you know they say, well, you know, back when everybody was working nine to five, or a very large proportion of people were, it makes sense, you can just pass a legislation and say, okay, now it's nine to three. Uh, but now you can't do that. I mean, look at me, I, I'm paid by the month to like work all the time, basically. Um, and, and there's just no way the government could regulate how much I work. Uh, without creating a vast bureaucracy of surveillance and 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 employ people in what would basically turn into bullshit jobs, um, so so I think that that it might compound the problem in that way. Just to figure out how to enforce it. I mean, if you can think of maybe there are ways to enforce it, I don't know about. Uh, I, I'd be very interested in hear, hearing and discussing it. But I'm suspicious, and that's why I think basic income would do the same thing better.
0: So we've got a little bit more time um, for a discussion. Why don't we ho- open it up to a Q&A? But before we do, I just want to do a very quick straw poll. Um, I think you know the question that's coming, <laughs> which is, if, have you ever, including currently, worked in a bullshit job and you're willing to admit it? Ooh, oh, that, there we ooh, go. blimey, I did not expect that. <laughs> Any RSA staff? And, the <laughs> you're fired. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, if we could maybe take begin with um, questions in batches of three, if that's OK. Um, and if you could keep them very, very concise and just say your name along with your question. So this lady here, this gentleman here, and the lady at the back, just in the, Yep, there you go. Hi, uh, my name's Louise Parbury. Um, did you notice a difference in the people who were sending their emails in, in terms of the difference between men and women, in terms of uh, would women just my theory. It'd be less likely to say that they have a BS job, uh, versus men being refusing to give up their identity is This is what I do. Who I am. And then this gentleman.
1: Um, is there an equivalent that you see to something like zero-based budgeting? Zero-based budgeting, where at the end of the year everyone's out of a job, and you figure out on January the first what jobs are real and, and who, how many folks you need to do them because. If what you're seeing is true, there's a lot of folks that need flushing out, really. Mm. (sighs) Even if it's to have a life of leisure. Mm.
0: And the lady here.
1: I I think my experience must be very limited. Can you give me some more examples of what these people, what you mean by bullshit jobs? Apart from the very obvious ones, there must be lots of less obvious. So, let me take those. That's three, shall I I proceed? Gender differences. Gender differences. Well, that's really interesting because that's one of the few things that the surveys actually asked. They didn't ask a lot of things that you really wish they'd asked, um, like what kind of job do you have? But um, they did ask, they did break it down by gender, and sure enough, there was a 10% spread. Women were much less likely to say they had bullshit jobs. I think that's because women are much less likely to have bullshit jobs, actually, Uh, which is interesting because a lot of People when they first hear the concept, especially men, obviously, assume that they 're mainly talking about women 's jobs they 'll say, "Oh, you know they made up all these like meaningless office jobs so give a women job it 's not that way at all and, and it, but but partly it 's also because of the dynamics i mean in a lot of traditional jobs, you have women in what look like a, a bullshit job, but they're the one who's actually doing the work for the the person they're working for. You know, so a classic secretary. You know, it's, it's like the the boss who has the bullshit job. I, I gave the example in the book of a, a friend of mine who um, was an anthropology major, went to anth- uh, Afghanistan to study belly dancing, and ended up. Becoming an administrative assistant, and finally wrote the NATO withdrawal plan. <laughs> From you know, while in theory employed as a secretary, <laughs> somebody just threw a said, "Oh, there's five of them. They're all contradictory. Here, you synthesize them somehow." <laughs> so she ended up doing the military strategy. So yeah, so so often in, in gendered cases, you don't know who's got the bullshit job and who doesn't. But I'm assuming that people who do the jobs are the ones who really know. Okay, so in terms of, yeah, how to find out who's really useful, I mean, it's a real problem because even if you do this, who's going to enforce it? Um, The fascinating thing is they're constantly doing, you know, cutting the fat, doing speed-ups on salaried and blue-collar workers. So, you know, if you're working for UPS, if you're a driver, if you're a delivery guy, if you're, you know, those guys are... Being tailorized and you know put it on huge pressure. There's no bullshit at all there, mm-hmm. right? But but at the same time, the same guys who are doing that are just hiring flunkies to sit around in the office making them look good who do nothing, um, and and so so there's a question of power. I, mean, I don't think it's as hard to identify them. Um, I, I there's one guy it always sticks in my head. He's a bank security and efficiency guy, and um, he says you know I I don't have a bullshit job. I identify other people's bullshit jobs. But then I realized I do have a bullshit job because they never actually act on any of my suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a box sticker. I'm here to like, make it seem like they're doing something they're not actually doing. For 15 years, I've gone to them and said, here's how you trim the fat here. And somebody says, what? But my empire would contract, you know? <laughs> no, and, and, and people block it. And they say, no, we can't computerize that. You know, fire 15 people, you know? So there's all this stuff done by hand, even in large corporations. It doesn't need to be for these reasons. Um, So it's a really interesting thing to look at the power dynamics and how they work themselves out. And uh, uh, in terms of examples, um, well, um, in terms of the kind of people who wrote things into me, the interesting thing was the absence of service jobs. You don't really see people being judgmental and saying like, why are, why are people buying this shit, it's stupid, you know, or like, you know, I serve coffee, I hate the people, you know, maybe they do hate them, but they don't actually see it as useless. Um, so it wasn't that. It was much more people in kind of clerical administrative jobs who just don't have any assignments. Um, I, I actually ended up with a typology of, of five, I can just go over it quickly to give you a sense. So there's flunkies, we've talked about that, so that would be like A receptionist at a company that doesn't need a receptionist you know some companies obviously do but some you know you'll have a small publishing firm where they get two calls a day it's not like they couldn't take it themselves right Uh, but if you don't have a receptionist you're not a real company so they have to hire someone who just sits there all day you know um, uh, and so there's a lot of that sort of thing then there's um, duct tapers. Duct tapers are basically, there's a problem, but instead of fixing it, they hire someone to clean up the damage. So uh, the example I always like to give of that was, it um, was one point, the shelves collapsed in my office when I was working at Goldsmiths, and um, it took ages for the carpenter to show up. And um realized they only had one carpenter, but they had another guy whose entire job was to apologize for the fact that the carpenter was too busy to come. <laughs> it's like, uh, you couldn't fire him and hire, like, another carpenter. (laughs) So that would be a duct taper. I always say it's like, you know, you, you, there's a hole in the roof, and instead of actually fixing it, you just get a bucket and hire somebody to empty it every hour. Um, all right, so, so, so that's a duct taper. And then you have box stickers who are basically there so that you can say you're doing something that you're not doing, like the guy who was the efficiency expert whose recommendations were never taken up. But, but a lot of there's one person, who, example of that, who works in a care home. And her job, she's in the entertainment branch, so her job is to give people elaborate surveys about what sort of entertainment they would like to have. And she has to spend so much time gathering this information, tabulating it, feeding the computer, taking another manual copy that has to be put in a binder of the right color. And um, you know, she doesn't have any time to actually entertain anybody. So that's a kind of classic example. Um, she kind of sneaks off on her own time. It's a little way like us academics, so if we read a book, that's considered our special leisure activity that, you know, um, we're getting away with on the sly. Um, so, so there's box ticking, and um, let me see, there's uh, goons. Um, I had to make this category up because it wouldn't have occurred to me normally. They're, they're basically what I was saying about industries that don't really need to exist according to people who work in them, except you need them because other people have them. So a lot of PR, marketing, um, you know, a, a lot of um, a lot, oh, telemarketers, like I never ran to a single telemarketer who didn't think their job shouldn't exist, you know. Um, and so 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 there's a whole industries that kind of feed off themselves. Uh, so there's a lot of that, um, and, um, finally, there are taskmasters, and taskmasters are, they're formed of various categories, but mainly they're people who supervise people who don't need supervision, and I got a lot from that. I mean, people who are middle managers who are saying, you know, I have a total bullshit job, um, you know, I used to do this job so that I did it well, they kicked me upstairs to management, and now I'm supposed to, you know, supervise these guys doing what I know perfectly well they would do if I wasn't here you know so and then they have a dilemma because like i want to do something so some of them actually say well i tried allocating myself work when no one was looking but then my boss caught me so <laughs> I can't do that so you know the obvious thing to do would be to like make up box ticking rituals for them to do like uh, you know make up some sort of performance figures and make sure they meet their targets but you know they they're, they're close enough to the work that they know that that would make them Spend time doing that instead of their job so it would have a negative effect. So they're kind of in a bind, you know So, so that would be a taskmaster. So those are examples of, of what a bullshit job might be like
0: Should We hmm? try and get three more in maybe even more so this gentleman here Oh, wow, Lots of people <laughs> at the back lower the back and this gentleman here I wonder about if you've quantified how much money the society is spending on these bullshit jobs, mm-hmm. and is that money enough to answer the usual criticism of UBI oh, that it's point. never <laughs> is, that, that it's unaffordable because mm-hmm. we'd have to tax people more? So rather than taxing people more, if we could just persuade these companies somehow to pay people for not doing anything at all, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be a, be a better
1: solution? That's a very nice idea. Uh, not to mention government. There's like a lot of you can get rid of those guys too. <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm Laura Partridge. Um, my mm-hmm. question's about the non bullshit jobs. Um, so, you mentioned bullshit jobs like uh, being a corporate lawyer um, mm-hmm. that actually have, in many respects, quite a lot of uh, social status. And I was wondering how we preserve the social status of non bullshit
1: jobs like being a nurse mm. or a teacher. Yeah, uh, good question. Okay, one more. It's a variation of the previous one. What would be the impact on GDP? Ah. because B.S. jobs valued at cost go into GDP with the same logic that people have power, how many B.S. employees. Mm-hmm. So do we need to do basic income and give people money so that they stop wasting overhead and what the effect on the GDP is? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Okay, well, the first um, mm-hmm. the question wasn't a question, so I'll just say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, quantify... Yeah, well that would be a very interesting question. Um, I mean, you also have to think about government there, because I mean, a U, Well, I mean, people say this about UBI in general, right? Um, it would re- massively reduce the number of bureaucrats, which you wouldn't have to pay, but you know, you would have to pay them, you pay them basic income like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they'd be much happier. Uh, because one of the things I found from these um, studies is I got a lot of people who work in government who, I guess the way I always put it is, you know, when you have somebody who you kind of wonder how they live with themselves, you know, I'm the guy who demands that homeless people show three forms of ID or we kick you back on the street again, you know, that sort of person, often they can't. Actually, they really feel terrible. They know just how bad it is of what they're doing. And they, they're in this terrible quandary, you know, and the system is set up so they can't act ethically. You know, if they try, they get in trouble. Uh, so, so those guys, you know, they can all move UBI. They can all go off and, you know, form a klezmer band or decide to restore antique furniture, or, you know, or whatever it is they decide they want to do, and they'll be happier, and and, and we'll all be happier to see the end of them. Um, so, so, which relates to another issue about UBI, in terms of quantification, I mean, we, and this goes back to the, uh, the, the, that question about um, gross domestic product is, is, essentially, we would just have to change our, our way of measuring this stuff. Um, I think, all our indicators are clearly way out of kilter. And, and one of the things that shows is that, you know, these market efficiencies people talk about, you know, are a myth. It's uh, it's it's a story we tell ourselves. Almost everything about these indicators is just fantastical and has no relation to actual value. We, uh, I, I actually make some suggestions in the book, and in, I've developed it elsewhere uh, in a recent talk in France, where I think that we need to just change our basic terminology about value and how we think about it. Um, I think production and consumption, you know, are terms that we just need to get rid of. First of all, most work doesn't produce anything. You know, I say I always say this. It's like uh, uh, you, you make a cup once, right? But you wash it a thousand times. You know, most, most labor is, is not about making stuff. It's about keeping things the same, maintaining things, taking care of people, taking care of animals and plants, taking care of, uh, 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 even tube workers, you know? I mean, there's this huge debate about whether tube workers have bullshit jobs, uh, which, uh, I got involved with, because people drew me into it, and some Marxists actually were saying, well, they're not producing value for capitalism, that's why they're trying to fire them all. This is during a tube strike. And, um, you know, and obviously in a communist society, we wouldn't need to ticket takers because, you know, or ticket booths because we wouldn't have tickets because we wouldn't be charging people, transportation would be free. So these are bullshit jobs, right? And, and um, the tube, Ticket office workers put up a very nice response, basically, not directly to these guys, but but to the idea that they're doing useless labor, uh, where they pointed out, like, okay, fine, you know, don't have any ticket offices. well, let's just hope you don't lose your kids, you know. Let's just hope there isn't an accident. You don't know, need to deal with an annoying drunk. And, and they sort of like went into all of the things, you know, didn't leave your computer on the table. You know, and, and, and they went into all the things these guys actually do. And it's all caregiving labor, you know. I mean, they don't do, you know, even these sort of classic proletarian jobs, mm. They're really you know, much more like nurses or, you know, it's just like what we think of as women's work is what they're actually doing. Um, it's a, we don't count it as work, so we don't imagine mm. they're doing anything. You
0: know? so how, <laughs> yeah. to Laura's point, how do we, mm. Strengthen that social status of jobs that really are worthwhile.
1: Yeah, I think we just need to look at why people say their jobs are bullshit I mean, what is the tacit theory of value they've got in their heads? Um, because it's clearly not market, you know, here I am being paid a lot of money to do something I don't think it's worthwhile. Um, there must be some notion of social value here. And I think caregiving labor is a great example of that. That's a, uh, you know, I think even if you build a bridge, you build a bridge because you care that people can get across the river. I mean, all value-producing labor is an extension of care. So I think we do need to go back to what's classically been women's work as the paradigm for value-producing labor. Mm-hmm. So, so I actually tried to develop this in a theory of the revolt of the caring class. that a lot of social unrest is uh, you know, the proletariat is essentially, it's become clearer now that factories are, are no longer as important. Uh, you know, proletariat is always mainly involved in carrying labor like the tube workers, much more than we thought. That's the sort of center of it. And, and we need to organize around that conception of value. So I suggested that instead of production and consumption, we substitute care and freedom. Perhaps caregiving and care is really that work we do which maintains and increases other people's freedom, of which mm-hmm. the paradigm would be play, right? Because play is action done for itself. It's par- because, like, what is caregiving labour? You take care of kids so they can play, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, uh, so we need to rethink production and consumption and get rid of those terms and, and think about care and freedoms uh, instead. Uh, I think uh, we've got time
0: for <laughs> one, maybe even two, for very quick This is my questions. spinosan feminism. Um, a lot of hands here, this lady here and this gentleman here. You have to be super quick with this, I think. Oh, we
1: well, already done. Oh, Hi, um,
0: what do you think the um, psychological health impact is on people who have mm. these BS jobs and know that they have these BS jobs? Because yeah. essentially they're aware of the fact that every day of their lives they're living a lie. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: shall so I just take that one directly or shall we do more? Um, just, yeah, if we mm. just, just take one more and then we'll have okay. yeah,
0: Steve Soden here. Um, I, I just wonder if you if anything came out in the research from people who actually loved their BS jobs because yeah it's a very a you get paid B you've got a social construct to work in um, you are probably dealing with people that you like I mean I deal with a lot of companies and I look around and I see a lot of happy people doing nothing I mean if, if the boss really wanted to be ruthless he could get rid of them but they're actually very happy and and leading pretty fulfilled lives actually.
1: Statistically, I'll ask the second one. First We do we have another question, or no? I think, think we just do those two. two. Okay. Um, all right, well the second one is easy uh, because the some of the there was another one in Holland where they actually did the numbers And it seems like six percent of jobs are Are jobs where the person doesn't think there's a point, but is finds it fulfilling anyway um, I think you know some of those people hate their families you know? uh, <laughs> Just like learning new skills like the people who were with what does it matter? Um, that's but the, the ones who actually sent in testimonies about it, which there weren't that many, but there were a few, were, the, the two things they had in common were, they knew what they were getting into. So there were things like substitute teacher, nobody expects that's going to be a real job, right? Or French civil servant, you know, something like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and relatively unsupervised. Either you're the boss or you don't have anybody breathing over your shoulder. So, you know, in a certain sense like that, you know, you could say, okay, I'm a substitute teacher. Uh, kids don't expect me to do anything nobody expects me. Well, I'll, I'll learn Chinese, you know, I'll become an artist, you know. Uh, so, so pe- if you could repurpose the time to something useful, yes. But the surprising thing is that, you know, that's what we think people should think. And mostly they don't. And that gets to the second, uh, or the first question, which is, you know, we have this assumption about human nature that people want something for nothing, that you know, ec- economists make it into a science, you know, we're trying to put out the least amount of effort and resources to get the most back from it. In if, if economists were right, like most people with bullshit jobs would be delighted, you know, <laughs> I'm getting paid to do nothing, this is great, you know, <laughs> but they're not. Um, the, the astounding thing is just how miserable so many people are, and the misery is compounded by the fact that they don't feel justified in being miserable for that very reason. I should be happy. If I told people why I'm miserable, they would say, what, what are you Complaining about you, but but in fact it shows that there's something about our assumptions about human nature that is profoundly misconceived. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back in the book to. Um, the uh, German psychologist came up with the idea of the pleasure at being the cause. You first, infants first become aware of themselves as discrete entities independent of the world when they realize they can have predictable effects. You know, if I move that way again, the pencil will move again. You know. When you first figure that out, you're just totally happy, apparently. The kids have this, this incredible joy, in realizing they can have predictable effects of the world. The argument is that, that that sort of sense of delight in being able to cause things to happen is the sort of foundation of our sense of autonomy of being, of being an autonomous thing. Um, and so if you...
0: concept of spiritual violence, have you, in your book? Right. You're,
1: you're, yeah, the spiritual violence is when you take that away. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, psychologists <laughs> being cruel, cr- and, and sadistic uh, creatures, they, they, you know, just say, all right, let's see what happens if you, like, have a infant figure that out and then immediately take it away again. <laughs> and then, of course, the kids just go catatonic, you know, they freak out, they get really upset, and then they just become incredibly depressed and have no motivation to do anything and curl up into a ball. And essentially, the argument is that's what's happening to people in bullshit jobs. You know, your basic sense of being, people, you know, ask somebody, what do you do, uh, you know uh, they usually assume you mean for a living, right? Um they don't say like I make model boats for my kids, you know. Uh they 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 even if that's the thing that's most important to them. Um so 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 if you you know that sense of of I am contributing to the world in some way is really important to people's sense of being a self. So in a way you're just taking away there uh, something fundamental about their being um, and, and the fact that you don't understand why this is upsetting you so much seems to compound it. So yeah, you hear about depression and in a way, what is depression? depression—a sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness and lack of motivation. Well, that's what a bullshit job is. It's objectively mimicking depression. So Not surprising rates of depression go up as these things become more common. Uh, stress and anxiety becomes really big. Um, a lot of people said who had both kinds of jobs, or who had both simultaneously. There was one guy I thought was really interesting. Uh, I call him Hannibal in the book. He's a guy who um, works most of the week on Diagnostic technology for t b which is you know, basically you can 't get anybody to pay you for, it, but it's really useful uh, he has a team of people who are volunteers who work on this and then once or twi- one or two days a week he writes what he describes as bullshit business reports um, or uh, marketing strategy for pharmaceutical corporations, so you know executives can wave things in front of each other and nobody even reads them, but he gets you know ten thousand pounds a pop for these things uh, and he says that you know uh it's a totally different world. When everybody knows they're doing something useful, they treat each other with respect, there's camaraderie, there's cooperation. As soon as you're doing bullshit, you know, no matter how much you're paid, and- Uh, everybody's like screaming at each other and freaking out and like uh, all these weird sadomasochistic rituals and deadlines and, you know, it's just totally, people just abuse each other incredibly when they, and the more they all secretly know it doesn't matter at all whether we really get this done, the more they get stressed out of uh, the deadlines and and the worse they treat each other. What a lovely note to end on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, th- yeah we do have to um, call time unfortunately um, thank you very much David for a really excellent talk and Q&A um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I really yeah it was really good I think the book is is genuinely a, a breath of fresh air for this debate because I think most people walk into the room when they hear the terms future work and good work they think about automation the lack of jobs in the future but actually what you're saying is we're probably going to continue to have a lot of jobs they're just going to be bullshit, and yeah, that's the, that's the big we do issue. do something
1: about it, which we can do. So um, <laughs> before we shoot off, um,
0: please give David a big round of applause.